Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us in person and online. If you are here in the sanctuary, we would love to meet you in the narthex on your way out. There's a yellow visitor card in the pew rack in front of you. If you'll bring that to us, uh, we have a gift for you today. Today, as we have been celebrating, is Palm Sunday in the life of the church. We celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and we prepare ourselves uh, to follow him as he goes to the cross. And so I want to repeat for you really quick what's coming up during Holy Week. Thursday, we invite you to dinner from 5 to 6. The service will be here in the sanctuary at 6.15, and you will have the opportunity to participate in those last acts with Jesus foot washing, communion, and prayer. And we will have music from our choir and other musicians and reflections by three people in our church. So we're really looking forward to that night. Friday, we have our drive-through stations of the cross from one to seven. Uh, that's a wonderful way to walk reverently with Jesus through uh, those, those um, everything leading up to the cross. And then on Sunday, we'll worship at 6.30, 8.30, and 10.30. In this season of Lent, we have been praying together the ancient, timeless Lord's Prayer. We've been singing it on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And as we've been digging into its deeper meaning and purpose, I hope that you have been saying it with a renewed mind and a renewed spirit, that you are challenged and nourished by these words. Today and next week, we will continue to see their weight and their importance as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look at our text for today, contextually, it is very rich and there is much to pay attention to. We have to understand what was happening in the first century when Jesus came into Jerusalem. We have to understand what it is alluding to in the Old Testament scriptures. Entrance processions into the city were a familiar ceremony in the first century. Many kings and generals entered Jerusalem in this way. We know this because of people like Josephus, a historian at the time who recorded Alexander the Great coming into Jerusalem. What we know through history is that it's, uh, they came in a pattern, that there were kind of four things that happened. The ruler was escorted into the city by citizens or the army of the conqueror. You can think about it as their groupies. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> the second one was that people would shout and sing hymns and acclamations. The third was that uh, the procession somehow symbolically represented the authority of this person. The fourth was that after this entrance, there was a ritual or a sacrifice that this conquering king would perform in the temple. And so as we look at Luke's account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, we see this pattern unfold. Jesus is escorted into the city with people who surround him, who spread their cloaks on the road and wave uh, their branches and say, Hosanna. He's surrounded by shouts of acclamation, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. People praise him, prove his authority by referencing his deeds of power. Later, we see that he uh, looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over the city for what is to come. And so right away, we are cued into the fact that Jesus is coming as a conqueror, as a king, as a savior. But there's more. 
History shows us that as Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday in the spring of 30, another procession was happening. Every year, the Roman governor would come down from Judea and ride into Jerusalem. And so Pilate was coming in to reinforce this Roman uh, garrison that was permanently stationed over the Jews and its courts. Now, he wasn't come to, coming to celebrate Passover. He was coming to remind the Jewish people that Rome was in charge. And so you have to imagine Pilate riding in with this cavalry of horses, foot soldiers in leather armor, helmets and weapons and banners, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the beating of drums. Now, Pilate's procession didn't just display all this imperial power. There was a statement that it was Roman imperial theology. He was not simply the ruler, but he was the son of God. And so when you understand these processions, that's how we frame the triumphal entry. Pilate rides in, proclaiming the power of the empire with signs of it, dominance, fear, chariots, war. And Jesus rides in, proclaiming the power of the kingdom of God, values like peace and nonviolence, humility and righteousness and refuge and hope. And so this is a statement. He isn't just the king, but the king of kings, the true son of God. In this moment, two kingdoms are clashing, just as they do for us. And today, like the people before, we must decide where our allegiance lies. During Lent, we've been looking at the book called The Lord's Prayer by Adam Hamilton, a pastor in Kansas City. And in his book, he references a man named Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was the special counsel to President Richard Nixon, and he served seven months in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Shortly before he went to prison, he became a Christ follower. And after he was released from prison, he wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. This was in 1987. And in this book, he tells the story of faithful Christians throughout history who came into conflict with the kingdoms of earth because of their allegiance to the kingdom of God. He cites, for example, Nazi Germany, files that were found where they actually wrote, the church is the constant thorn in the flesh of Hitler and his aides. The church is the only institution in Germany that offered meaningful resistance. He cites one of these villages where there was meaningful resistance. It was a, a village in France, Les Chambon. There was a man named Pierre Savage who uh, was a part of the home, was there, was, uh, that was his hometown, and he made a film about this village. He said that him and his parents and 5,000 other Jews were able to escape because of their Christian neighbors. The film was called Weapons of the Spirit, and he called it that because back in that time, there was a preacher in the village who said, the duty of the Christian is to resist the violence that will be brought, not on our bodies, but on our conscience if we do not intervene. And we have power because of the weapons of the Spirit. And so these, this village of poor farmers uh, lied to authorities. 
They took Jewish refugees in their homes. They set up an underground railroad to smuggle Jews into Switzerland. And then word spread about this village all over France. And so people made their way to this village. And soon the government knew about it, but they joined in on it. And soon German soldiers stationed over this village knew about it, but joined in on it. So his point is that all of these people faced a choice. Pledge allegiance to the ruler of the world or pledge allegiance to Jesus. And necessarily there will be times when those kingdoms come into conflict. This reminds me of the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. She writes about different caste systems across the world, the American South, India, and also Nazi Germany. And what I remember is she begins the book with this uh, picture of a man standing in a workyard surrounded by all these other men who are saluting Hitler. This man, however, is standing there with his arms folded across his chest in refusal. She said that we all want to believe that we would be that man, but would we? Are we? There are times and places where our allegiance to Jesus rubs up against what we see in the kingdom of the world. So when it comes down to it, do we align with, do we choose the weapons of this world? Or are we armed with the weapons of the spirit? When we pay attention to Jesus riding into Jerusalem this day, we see that this allusion to Zechariah, to the Old Testament, shows us that Jesus offers us the weapons of peace and humility and hope. I want to read Zechariah 9 for you so you can understand how this is being fulfilled. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He will take away the chariots and the war horses and the battle bows. He will proclaim peace to the nations. And as for you, because of my covenant, return to your fortress you prisoners of hope. As I've been thinking about what the peace of the kingdom means for us this week, I've been thinking about it in terms of its opposite. And for me, that, um, that word is panic. <laughs> Many of you uh, understand panic. We, we experience it in little ways and big ways throughout our life. I thought about a big way that I experienced panic uh, a couple years ago when my son was two years old. I was standing over the stove making dinner and he was standing in a chair next to me. And because he was so close to the stove, you know, I was watching him closely, making sure he didn't stick his hand on the eye. But all of a sudden, I uh, forgot about the knife block that was a couple of, um, you know, fingertips away from him. And he reached for a steak knife, and he wrapped his tiny little hand around that steak knife. And as I tried to stay calm and not panic and get him to give it back to me, that child squeezed it tighter and tighter. And so suddenly, I was yelling for my husband for help, trying to pry his little fingers off of the knife. And by the time uh, Mark came into the room, I had gotten Lewis to let go of it. And I was just sure that he was going to be all cut up on his hand. But thankfully, he was not. 
that panic though, that sense, I know you can feel it as I talk about it. I think we experience that collectively together in the world. We, we feel panic when we see conflict and violence, when there's harsh rhetoric and divisiveness, right? We live sometimes in the state of anxiety and worry over our ability. Will we ever be able to get along, to belong, to survive? But then there's, you know, lesser ways that we experience panic throughout our weeks, right? Sometimes we feel panic over a misunderstanding that leads to conflict. Sometimes we feel panic over what someone's perception of us is. Sometimes we feel panic over realizing we left something we needed at home. We have panic over how and when we will complete a task for work. The thing is, often when we live in this state of panic or feel panic, we are not quick to access and respond with peace. We meet violence with violence. We allow the panic that rises up in us to make us aggressive and reactive and explosive. And so when we say that Jesus comes to take away the chariots and the war horses and the battle bows, we first mean to take away those weapons that live in our own hearts. We first must look to the peace that we cultivate internally, the peace that once we have, we're able to give away. You know, this past mon Monday, I opened up my email and I'm thankful that it was Monday because I get these little thoughts of wisdom and it uh, was talking about my personal personality pattern, but maybe you'll be able to relate. It said, notice, when you are about to make a critical comment to yourself or someone else, stop, breathe, be open to a better way to respond in the moment. And I'm not saying that I practiced it well, but because of that piece of wisdom, I thought about it when I encountered situations that made me panic. See, the world may invite us to retaliate or dominate or be aggressive, but Jesus says, meet violence with non-violence, meet panic with peace. So, you know, we can grab the knife and we can just keep squeezing, we can cut others with our sarcasm and our sharp and cheap words, or we can choose to let go and search for that inner peace we can trade those worldly weapons for weapons of the spirit. When we talk about humility, we must see Jesus coming in with righteousness and victory, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus was uninterested in the worldly displays of power. Many of you have heard about or know about the author Henry Nouwen. He was a Dutch Catholic priest, a writer, a theologian. Uh, he was a pretty noted person, a professor at Harvard Divinity School. But in 1985, he left Harvard to go and join the La Arche community in France. He spent nine months living with and sharing life with people with and without learning disabilities. And so he writes about in one of his books what it's like to lose every accolade that he ever earned in life. No one there understood or cared about his scholarship or his degrees or the way he spoke or his fame. He was humbled by the experience of being a nobody in the eyes of this community, but he soon recovered what it meant to be somebody 
to have self-worth apart from your work and recognition and earthly reward. One of the statements in his book that has stuck with me since I first read it when I was 18 years old, he said, look, I'm deeply convinced that Christians, Christian leaders of which we all are, are called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. And so I think that works to say humility looks like vulnerability. Jesus made himself irrelevant and vulnerable and did not seek the worldly power or praise. And so as Christians, what we can contribute to the world is to be people willing to be irrelevant and vulnerable, glorifying God instead of glorifying self. Finally, hope. In Zechariah, when God says, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope, he is talking to a people, to Israel, who are scattered from their homeland, who are enduring hardship under oppression and occupation. And so here I feel like God is like borrowing the language of the kingdom of earth and turning it on, turning it on its head. It's as if he's saying, look, I know that you're bound and confined by this world, but your refuge, your fortress, your stronghold is in the kingdom of God. And so you can choose, no matter what, to be a prisoner of hope. And so today, I want to say to you, you may feel bound and confined by the kingdom of earth, but your refuge is in Jesus Christ. Your fortress, your stronghold is in the kingdom of God. You are a prisoner of hope. So how can you resist the evil and injustice and oppression of this world? You can stay under lock and key, chained to the peace that passes all understanding. How can you be irrelevant and vulnerable? You can remain handcuffed to humility. How can you access inner stillness and peace in the midst of panic and pressure that presses in on all sides? You can stay shackled and stuck to hope. Refuse to be moved. Do not surrender. Do not budge. As Jesus enters Jerusalem in our hearts and in our world yet again this day, let us exalt the King of Kings with our promise and our pledge of allegiance. Amen.